Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message from Real Life Community, where we talk about connecting with God and others, growing in Christ-likeness, and sharing God's life with the world. My name is Sarah Comer, and I serve each week as Connections Pastor, making sure that you know that there is a God and a community that loves you and wants to go through the seasons of life with you. The easiest way to connect with us from right where you are is by downloading our free Real Life Community app from your app store. You can also find us at reallifecommunity.org, and we would love to meet you on Facebook or Instagram. Until then, we hope this message meets you right where you are and helps you know just how deep the Father's love is for you. Before us this morning, Revelation chapters 10 and 11. If you have ever found the Bible confusing before, uh, know that one, you're not alone. Uh, a lot of people find lots of parts of the Bible confusing. And, and, and yet, the most confusing book in the Bible is probably Revelation, if we're being honest. So much symbolism, so much stuff going on. Now, here's the thing. The most confusing chapter of Revelation is one of the ones that we're working on today. So I want to encourage you to hang with me. I'm going to be throwing symbols and concepts and numbers out like a fire hose at you. But we will hopefully, if God is good to us this morning, and I believe he will be, but pull it all together and some of the things will end up making sense. I believe this can be a really powerful couple of chapters right here at the middle of Revelation. Revelation, uh, if, if you kind of zoom out, really happens in a couple of different acts. It's like a, like a play that has two different acts going on. And you really, a lot of people don't realize this, but if you read through chapters 1 through 11, at the end of chapter 11, you're at the end. John gives us a picture of the kingdom of God come. Uh, now, the rest of Revelation, like 12 through maybe 19 or 20, um, is really a zoomed in look at a couple of the things that happen in chapter 11, just expanded, kind of like an act two recap or something uh, in some more detail with a little more of a view in the heavenly realms uh, and how those kinds of battles spill out onto the earth. And then at the end, uh, all the way at the end of Revelation 21 and 22, we've got the ex- expanded scene from that we see in Revelation 11 of God's kingdom come to earth like in full technicolor you know glorious detail Dolby digital surround sound kind of a thing Uh, so but here in chapter 11 we get kind of an advanced taste of it so today we've got chapter 10 chapter 11 what I want to do for us this morning is I want to start at the end I want to start at chapter 11, the very end of chapter 11. So this is the exact midpoint of the story of the vision of Revelation. And I want to share with you the short version of when John sees the day of the Lord come and the kingdom of God settle down onto the earth. It happens with the seventh trumpet. When the seventh trumpet sounds, there were loud voices in heaven which said, and I'm in verse 15, by the way, Loud voices in heaven said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. 
The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small. The time has come for destroying those who destroy the earth. And then God's temple and heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. So that's the end. That's the, the seventh trumpet blows. Remember last week, if you were here, we talked through the first six trumpets. And then chapter 10 and first part of chapter 11 is there's a pause before the, the last trumpet sounds. So this pause, this time in between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet is where we're gonna sit down in and work through those stories today and unpack those things. If you remember last week, or maybe you weren't here, let me tell you just a little bit, we went through the six trumpets being blown in chapters eight and nine, and those trumpets were judgment trumpets. Disaster happened, people died, parts of the earth were wiped out, the parts of the heavens went dark, those kinds of things happened as God's judgment was being spoken onto the earth. And then at the end of the sixth trumpet, after all this judgment, what happened to the people? Do you guys remember? All the people continued to shake their fists at God with hard hearts and said, we're gonna keep doing whatever we wanna do. We don't care about your judgments. We're gonna keep uh, living like we've always lived and continue to be destroyers of your world. So that was the end of the sixth trumpet. Then we've got an interlude and then the seventh trumpet blows. And by the way, right before the seventh trumpet blows, we have this scene in verse 14 or 13 where all of the people who were remaining, all the survivors, give praise and glory to God. And here's the question that I wanna work through today. At the end of chapter nine, you've got all the people shaking their fist at God. Your judgments don't matter to us. We're, our hearts are hard. We're gonna do what we wanna do. And then you've got this interlude and then all of the people are now giving praise and glory to God. And my question is, what happened in between that caused the shift? Are you with me here? What, what happened there? What happened in this pause? Now, let me tell you something else about Revelation. There are a few times like when we're breaking the seals off of the scroll, and between the sixth and seventh seal, there's a pause. Then between the sixth and seventh trumpets, there's a pause. And I think that John means for us to see ourselves living in the pause. In this season, in this period of time, before the seventh trumpet blows and the kingdom comes and kind of in the midst of all of this like judgment and things kind of unraveling, the, this is an important part for us to see ourselves living in the pause. So what's happening right here that's gonna cause this scene to morph into this scene? Well, let's work through the story, can we? Uh, we work through the story in chapter 10. We find that uh, there's an angel and this angel is standing uh, with one foot on the shore and one foot in the sea and this angel holds in his hand a little scroll. This little scroll is uh, the scroll that has been opened by Christ that, uh, that holds all of the words of what God is doing in, the human, in human history to bring creation towards its fulfillment and completion and final redemption. That's what the scroll that the angel is holding. And then John hears this voice from heaven. It's, it's the voice of Jesus that he's heard before. And the, the voice says, take the scroll. 
So John goes up and this is all a part of his vision. He goes up and he takes the opened scroll from the angel's hand and the angel tells him, now eat the scroll which of course is what you do with scrolls, right? You eat them, like a little ketchup, a little mustard or whatever. We probably have some at the connection lunch. I don't know. So, uh, but, but that's what he told us. You, you got to imagine John is thinking, that is an odd thing to say, but we've heard this message before. The Old Testament prophets, this has been said before, that it would take the word of God, eat it, uh, eat, eat this scroll. And so, so uh, he, he's told that when you eat it, When you take the word of God and the plans of God that he has planned into yourself, it will at first be sweet, but it will eventually turn your stomach sour. And what this is saying is whenever we have the word of God come to us, because it's the word of God, it's sweet, right? But as, as, uh, as John begins to sit with what the message is and what it's, what it's saying to him, it's bitter. And he's like, I don't know if I want to go through that. I, so the scroll contains some things that are going to be difficult for him to digest, basically, is what we're saying. But he takes this, takes that scroll, and then he's given some instructions. And here we are in the middle of one of the most difficult chapters and sections in the whole Bible. So hang with me. Tons of, of images. John has taken the scroll. He's eaten it. Sure enough, it tasted sweet, and then it turned his stomach sour. And then he's told, listen to this, he's told to go out and measure the temple and its altar and all of its worshipers. The temple and its altar and all of its worshipers. Now in John's day, by the time John was writing this revelation, the temple signified the people of God. The physical temple, brick and mortar, had been destroyed decades before. A couple decades before, the Romans had ransacked it and leveled it. And now when you talk about the temple, that is the people of God. So essentially John's being told, go out and take stock of the church. Measure it, figure out where the church is, like gather in the boundary lines of the church. And I want you to all, but but I don't want you to measure the outer courts because the outer courts of the temple, the church, is going to be given over to the Gentiles, those who are not followers of God. And the Gentiles will take the outer portion of the church, so this, whatever portion that is of the church, and it will trample it. Yay, right? Uh, this is a, a, exciting stuff. The Gentiles will trample on this section of part of the church and, and this will last for, we're told, 42 months. Now, there's one number I want you to hang on to. At this time, when the Gentiles are trampling the outer courts, God will call up for himself two witnesses. Now, witnesses, if you read it in the original languages, in, in the original language of the Greek, it's this word, Martusin. Everybody say Martusin with me. Ready? Go. Martusin, uh, which is where we get the word martyr. So anytime you see the word witness in Revelation, it's the word martyr. It's the word martyr. It's putting your life on the line for this message. And in fact, sometimes even to the point of giving your life for this faith. So God will raise up these two witnesses and these two witnesses are to prophesy for 
we heard 42 months uh, is how long the Gentiles are trampling. Then we're told 1260 days is the length of the prophecy that these two witnesses will have. And, and so these two witnesses are prophesying and, and really these two witnesses, are, we're supposed to see them as the church. They're called the lampstand or the olive trees, which are symbols for God's people. The lampstands in Revelation, symbols for the church all the time. And so they are told, they're given this prophetic role when we read through what the, the two lampstands, the olive trees, the witnesses, however you want to call them, uh, when we're told what they're supposed to be doing and the things that they can do, we're told that they can like breathe fire out of their mouths, which some of you are like, I haven't received that spiritual gift yet. Uh, can you please give that one to me? No. Listen, again, imagery, symbolism, right? We're told that Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth a couple of times in Revelation. So these are pictures, word pictures that John is doing here. But fire comes out of their mouth to put down their enemies. We're told that they have, the, by the way, that's something that Jeremiah was, no, like that was language from Jeremiah. So this is prophetic tradition type stuff. We're told that they have the authority, these witnesses, during these 1260 days to shut up the heavens, which is something that Elijah did when he was battling the prophets of Baal. We're we're told that they have the authority to turn water to blood and strike the earth with plagues, which is what Moses did when he was doing battle with Pharaoh, right? These are prophetic type traditions. So as we read these things, these two witnesses, the church in this time, is told to stand in the line of the prophetic witness that we've seen God's people stand in generation after generation after generation and give witness to him. But this is only lasting for 1260 days, right? There's, the Gentiles are trampling for 42 months. The witnesses are speaking for 1260 days. And both of these things are the equivalent of three and a half years. And that's where it starts to come into focus. Because three and a half is what? Half of seven which seven shows up all over Revelation. Seven is a symbol of completion, wholeness, fulfillment. Three and a half then, John could have said, for a limited time. All of these things will happen for a limited time. They're not gonna go on forever. The Gentiles aren't gonna trample forever. You're not gonna have to stand in a difficult role of speaking in the prophetic tradition and living in the prophetic tradition forever. It's for a time and that's where they're standing now. That happens about three and a half years. Again, a limited time. And then we get to verse seven. Chapter 11, verse seven says, now when they have finished their testimony. So guys, listen, there is going to come a time when we don't have to stand in that spot of being in that prophetic role, that prophetic tradition. But when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them. Now, we haven't met this beast yet, but I want to tell you next week we're going to talk about it a whole lot because chapters 12 through 18 or so uh, really take a magnifying glass and they say, okay, now let's talk about who that is and what that looks like and how you're supposed to resist it and the battles that are going on in the heavenly realms that spill out onto the created realms and all of these kinds of things. But here we're just told the beast that comes up out of the abyss where all of the evil kind of is locked away will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified for three and a half days. 
a limited time. Some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. So let's just recap. A beast from the abyss, an advanced image of chapters 12 through 19 shows up, overpowers and kills these witnesses the church. Similar to the way that Jesus was killed by the same kind of off the rails powers that have been harming God's people and resisting truth since Sodom and Egypt and on down the line. And as John is writing this letter, currently Rome is the standard bearer for those powers that have gone off the rails. But every generation has one and it continues to cycle through and roll through. So we're told that the same powers as Sodom and Egypt and also the city that crucified our Lord. So at a, for a time, Jerusalem uh, flew that banner for a while when Jesus, when they were crucifying Jesus. And now it's been passed on to Rome and on down the line. So these Christians suffer and die in the way of Jesus. And the nations that were surround them, that the Christians had been uh, holding up this word of the testimony and the prophetic truth, they were so annoyed with the presence of the church that once the church is gone and dead, they gloat over it in the streets. Nations and people from all different tribes and languages stand out in the middle of the street and they're like, aren't you so glad we don't have to deal with the church anymore? They were such a pain. Uh, they were such a thorn in our side. They wouldn't want us to do any of the things that we wanted to do. And, and so now we're rid of them. They're so happy to be rid of the church that they make it a holiday and they're, they're giving gifts to each other, right? And then we read, that this lasts for three and a half days, and then in verse 11, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. The witnesses, listen, because now we're starting to really hone in on what these chapters are all about. The witnesses who died in the way of the lamb are raised with him as well. But this time, everybody gets to see it. You remember when Jesus uh, was crucified and laid in a tomb, it was in the dark of night and he laid there in the darkness and then in the dark of night or when the sun came up the next day, but nobody was watching at the time the stone was rolled away. Nobody got to see their, like have their eyes laid on when the breath of life entered into the body of Jesus and he was raised up. But in this case, everybody who had been shaking their fist at God and exchanging gifts because we were done with those people, the church that kept trying to hold up truth to us, now they get to see that the mercy of God has been poured out on these faithful servants who had given their lives in the same pattern as Jesus. And now they watch as these people are by God's grace and mercy being lifted up into heaven and given eternal 
life. And the survivors then were told, after that scene, that's when the survivors are terrified and give glory to the God of heaven. Now, that, that scene happens and there's also, uh, there's, there's an earthquake and there, there's a city that's, dis- a tenth of it is destroyed and, and it's about 7,000 people, he says, which are tiny numbers, tragic, but in the grand scope of things and God's judgment, those are, John is wanting us to see that there's only a small fraction of people that refuse to give glory to God here. And they're destroyed and the remaining people Everybody that's left, which was the vast majority of the people there, give glory to God. Now, here we are at the brink of the seventh trumpet being blown and the consummation of God's redemptive plan for the world coming to pass. But let's zoom out for just a minute, okay? As the seals are breaking and the trumpets are blowing, judgments are being unleashed on the forces of evil in the world that are destroying God's good creation. But none of that actually leads to the change of heart for those remaining in the world. The the people that are left at the end of the judgments, they just double down on their rebellion. Like like at the end of chapter 9, at the end of the sixth trumpet. But now we're shown the role of the church in this time before the end. And the role of the church is actually a part of what leads to the change of heart of people repenting and giving glory to God. So I want to talk about the role of the church. Now I know, I know guys, there's been a ton of images and numbers and all sorts of things. I can see heads spinning and eyes rolling back and all of that kind of stuff. Let's zoom in here. So if I lost you at some point, come back to me. All right, here we are, 10 and 11, talking about the role of the church in this time before the end. There are two things that John is wanting to communicate here in this vision. Number one is that our role now as we wait on the final day of the Lord, is to give witness to the truth of God, even when it's a thorn in the side of the powers of the world. That's a hard place to stand, but that's a part of our calling. Now, it doesn't mean that as the church we have to be belligerent about these things. For sure, we don't want to be hateful and mean, mean and spiteful. And we want to bring a grace and a compassion and a love to carrying this truth and a humility for sure. Because, listen, the church needs to have the truth held up to it a lot of times too. We got to look in the mirror for all the things. But this is our role, to hold up and remain faithful to the truth even when the world around us and the powers that be are calling us to a different way. That the church is called to stand in this prophetic witnessing kind of tradition, number one, to give witness to the truth of God, and number two, to lay down our lives in the way of the Messiah who overcame these powers, the same ones, Sodom, Gomorrah, Jerusalem, Rome, Egypt, on down the line, the same powers, he overcame them and all of the spiritual powers that have rebelled against God. He overcame them with his death and resurrection. And the church is called to live in the way of the lamb who is worthy. So, to lay down our lives figuratively, 
How can we divest ourselves of power? How can we get underneath somebody else to serve? How can we look out for a needy person? How can we enfold somebody who's lonely? How can we, um, you know, share our possessions? How can we, you know, lift somebody else up? These are the kinds of things that we're talking about figuratively laying our life down. You can imagine all sorts of other things. But guys, in places in the world today, as we move towards the seventh trumpet being blown, we're told that this is probably going to intensify and there may be times where the people of God who are standing here as witnesses are called to remain faithful to the truth even to the point of literal death. Here we go. Trusting that God will be faithful. And here... I think is the phrase that I really want us to get here from this message, that it's the suffering love of the church and the mercy that God shows to us by raising us up at the end that finally leads to the vast majority of creation turning their hearts and lives over to God. That's what changed. We saw the screen at the beginning of the service that mercy triumphs over judgment. And this, I think, we see an, an image or a symbol or a picture of that, that God's judgment is coming down and coming down and coming down, and the people shake their fist, and then God shows his mercy to his faithful people and lifts them up, and everybody's heart changes. Everybody's heart turns around. In fact, this is how you came to faith, isn't it? that you learned that Jesus laid down his life for you and that God's mercy for your life softened your heart, brought you to a place of repentance and caused you to give glory to God. And if you haven't made that decision yet, if you haven't come to that place yet, that's what's gonna get you there. God longs to show grace to you through his son, Jesus. And this is the role of the church here. And for, to trust in and depend on the faithfulness of God and the power of God to be able to raise up his faithful servants, even if we have gone into the grave and all the nations gather around us and say, oh, we're so glad we're done with those church folks or whatever, just trusting that God will take care of it and use that selfless way of life in the end. Listen, we don't get to the seventh trumpet because of the church's ability to exert power and influence in the world. That's not how we get there. We don't move there that way. We don't get to the seventh trumpet because the church wins all of the arguments. We don't get there because the church stands in the middle of the street for three and a half days and everybody says, you know, that's a really good point. Uh, we're going to give our hearts over to God now. We don't get to the seventh trumpet because our ability to reclaim and hold on to some status or place of privilege or some majority or some uh, authority that we seem to have had at some point the or, or because we've defeated our enemies. None of that moves us towards the seventh trumpet. The thing that moves us towards the seventh trumpet is losing our lives and letting God raise them and having everybody look on. That's the way that finally moves us there. And if we look back over history, guys, I think this reality has been borne out. Think about the first three centuries of the church, how 
It experienced this explosive growth all over the world, and yet there were no presidents who were Christians. There were no emperors who were Christians. There were no people of places of great authority who were Christians. This was a subversive movement where many people were being hunted down, killed, sacrificed, esteemed. They didn't have a place of authority. Nobody gave them a seat at the community table. They were living in the, the outskirts of society, and every, the church grew like wildfire. In the second century, there was a church father named Tertullian, and he was surveying the growth of the church at the, at the same time that the church was suffering intensely. And he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This is like almost 2,000 years ago. He said this, whenever a Christian stands in this place and suffers in the name of Jesus, in the way of Jesus, with the spirit and heart of Jesus, with the love of Jesus. Whenever a Christian especially loses his or her life, seeds are planted in those places. And out of those seeds spring up new life and repentant hearts and changed lives. This is the way we've seen it happen, not just in the first three centuries, but you look around the world today. Where is the church growing the fastest? Where are people turning their hearts and lives over to Jesus the fastest? Places like China and Nepal and Saudi Arabia. Do you know what the fastest growing religion in Iran is? Christianity. You look in some of these places and Christianity is not growing. People aren't giving their hearts over to, to, to God because the church is so powerful and mighty and has so much authority. It, the people are, are giving their lives over to God because they see faithful witnesses. And God raises those testimonies up and that people can't help but look and say, see something about Jesus there. And that's compelling. And it causes to, to look and say, what is going on here? Why would somebody give their life for me? Why would somebody lay down their life and, and hold on to the truth to that place and trust God so strongly? It is the seed of the church. There is an unmistakable connection between a church that learns to live faithfully in the selfless, suffering way of Jesus and others coming to faith in God. Now, that was a difficult section there, wasn't it? Um, we're gonna go to communion in just a minute. And there are several reasons. Some of you are like, we just took communion last week. And, and I know, but we can do it two weeks in a row. It's okay. Uh, so, um, but we're, we're doing it on purpose here today because um, it reminds us, community is a remembrance. It's a remembrance of the reality that Christ's body was broken and his blood was poured out for us, for our sake, for our forgiveness, so that our hearts would turn. So that we would be given life. That this is the way that life comes to us through the sacrifice of Jesus, okay? This is also, though, something we don't talk about real often is the fact that when we take these elements into ourselves, the imagery there 
the nourishing there, the, the picture there is that we are to take that same way of life into our way of life and let it become our own for the sake of the world. Now, it's not the same. We don't give a sacrificial death the way that Jesus gave for the world. That was a one-off thing. Jesus did something that none of us can do. And yet that way, uh, when we step into it, we somehow get pulled into this sacrificial love that is poured out for the sake of the world, for the world that God so loves to finally one day have its heart turned to him again. That the kingdom would settle down. Guys, before we come today, I want to say to you as your pastor, as your pastor of a church in a country where more often than not, we have the power, that that's holding on to that is not the way we get there. Exercising it, flexing the muscles, it's not how we get there. This is maybe more of a challenge, this message for us, than it is for John's original audience or for the Christians in China. They read this message like, yeah, we've been doing that. We know we need some hope that we're going to be raised up for us. It takes us a hurdle to even get to the place of laying down our lives. This is where we got to go. It's where we got to go. It's how we get there. And so um, as we come forward today, Remember the way that Jesus took to give us life and let that way begin to nourish your own as well. Would you stand? I want to um, have a word of prayer for us, those who are gonna uh, bring us communion and serve us this morning, if you would come. I think immediate takeaway for us today is very simply, God, um, would you help me and us and your church, your witnesses around the world be faithful to the selfless, suffering love pattern that we remember when we receive communion? God, let this way nourish our life. This week, in all of the privilege that we have and all of the authority that we have and all of the influence that we have, um, we thank you for placing us in these kinds of places, God, and yet we want to stay consistent with the model of Jesus who considered equality with God nothing to be grasped but emptied himself and took on the form of a human and became a servant and even a slave that he gave his life, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God, would you help us to step into that tradition from wherever we are? However you lead us, however you call us, help us to find somebody to serve this week. Help us to find a way to pour ourselves out. Help us to find some resources to share. Help us, God, to prayerfully give ourselves over to uh, just laying our lives down in in ways for others. God, would you uh, help us to be Christian witnesses in this time between the times? 
And God, we trust you that as we do, as we give, as we serve, as we share, as we love, and even as we suffer, we trust you to lift us up in the same way that you did with Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Everybody said, amen. If you are a follower of Jesus, even this morning, if you choose, you say, I want to I go after Jesus, um, then we want to invite you to the table to remember that this is the way that he leads us in. Um, if you feel like you need to take a pass for any reason, uh, nobody's going to look at you funny, just, uh, just take some time and pray and listen to the song. And while you come, we're going to sing a song about having God's life in us. Um, receive the elements, bring them back to your chairs, and we'll take them together.